and Alana. And here's another episode of Black and Yellow for you guys. Coming at you hot, fresh off the presses. Oh, it's finally sunny. It is. It stopped raining. Not officially spring yet, but we're getting there. Yes, yes, yes. So I think that before we talk about our depressing, not depressing, but our burned out topic for today's show, we should maybe start on a positive note. Yes. So we are going to talk to you guys about our Blasian report. Yeah. A little Blasian report. A little news report. (laughs) (laughs) Jack and I are going to try and incorporate something that's happening either in our respective uh, ethnic groups or our combined ethnic groups, like today's news report. Report news that the CFDA Vogue Fashion Fund has uh, two new African-American judges added to their panel. So if you don't know what the CFDA Vogue Fashion Awards is, I'll tell you what CFDA first and foremost stands for. It stands for the Council of Fashion and Designers in America. And this fund essentially is for up-and-coming brands or designers to submit their works in fashion to a a pretty stacked group of fashion heavy hitters, mm-hmm. hoping to win $400,000 cash prize and a year of mentorship from some of the biggest industry names. And so CFDA really has the power, the winner of it really has the power to be put on the fashion map. Through CFDA, uh, some winners have been Alexander Wang, Proenza Schooler, Public School, really big designers and heavy hitters in the fashion world. And so as far as fashion goes, participating in CFDA, Vogue Fashion Fund, uh, can be a pivotal moment in any emerging designer or brand's career. And so last year, there was something that happened. Ava Chen posted a picture of the panelists from 2018, and a lot of her followers had feedback about its lack of diversity. Um, It's a panelist of 10 looking at these 10 people. It's clearly those from Caucasian descent or three, it looks like, from Asian descent, but no African-American men or women are sitting on the panel Mm -hmm. that at the time that this picture was taken. Right. A lot of people had a lot to say about that because African-Americans, by and large, have always been at the forefront of fashion and self-expression and emerging trends Mm -hmm. leave it to the blacks we always (laughs) we always set the stage um but but we're also not sitting in places i.e like this panel of judges to be able to allow other emerging designers of color or brands of color to really emerge yes and so a lot of people had something to say about this mainly because fashion is being reshaped thank thank Thanks in large mm-hmm. part to streetwear. Yes, streetwear, Adidas Supreme. Definitely, yeah, Adidas just released their uh, new, which is designed by, if I'm not mistaken, a Korean girl. Oh, yeah, I'm gonna pull up her name right now. Her... Sorry, yeah, Adidas is not. I don't, I don't do the streetwear thing. I just don't like pull off that look very well. What? I think you could rock it. What are yes, you I. About? You know, I think I stopped dressing sporty when Sporty Spice stopped being. <laughs> when the Spice Girls stopped being a thing. When Sporty Spice stopped being. Uh, oh, you're funny. my like style icon. I think that's when my my sportiness sort of streetwear wearing self uh, died. Yeah, uh, the debut of her collection with the Adidas original, uh, G One Choi. Oh, uh, okay. And she, let me just show you on my phone real quick. She did all, she's like, oh. she's doing, yeah, that's her. Okay, got it. I have seen these designs yeah. before. I, I guess I didn't her. realize they were Adidas. What? These stripes are like classic. They are the classic three stripes, but it's in a totally. Yeah, it's like completely. Okay. okay. Oh, I had no idea. Yeah, so good for her. Okay. Or good for Adidas. I'm sure they are, I'm sure she's uber talented, but also, you know, I don't. I think I don't I can't say that I know or don't know, but the fact that they're either giving her a chance or the fact that she's being recognized for this stuff at this time and age is very important. Yeah. So it's important to get some new perspectives in design. It's important to get some new perspectives and some yeah. new points of view when it comes to the clothes that we choose to invest in and express ourselves with. Yeah. And uh the only reason I, I think I saw Kendall Jenner like do a post 
of how happy she was for her. And so nice. Not that she has these celebrities and models sort of marketing and okay. wearing her. De- I'm sure she got it for free, obviously. But anyways. Well, I mean, fashion can be such an insular world and all too often it feels what like does that word mean insular like it's just like unto itself oh yeah like yeah, yeah it's yeah. not um like you can't sit open with to everyone <laughs> for sure definitely um it even can be esoteric in some ways and so it's hard for outsiders to break because it really is way 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 back in the day i mean couture houses were essentially couture houses because they were making clothing for the wealthy and the rich right and so if you didn't have money to invest in a new wardrobe you weren't really privy to these high and elite circles that these fashion people run in mm-hmm. and so i think that allowing more people of color yes be it brown, black, yellow. Yes. Is really signifying that fashion is changing. And I think little by little, listen, fashion has a lot of work to do. It does. Because African-American and Korean-American designers are still being seen as quote-unquote emerging talents. When, like I said earlier, like leave it to the blacks, like we are tastemakers. Leave it to Korean-Americans, but also Asian-Americans who have been leaders in their own way yeah, in fashion well, I mean, like, for years. Yeah, Wang right. has been around since I was like 10 years old. Right. Like minority designers still somehow get the stamp of of still working their way up, yeah. not quite being there yet. Yeah. And I think that that needs to change. And you could like, I could cite Virgil Abloh, who is the uh, men's artistic director at Louis Vuitton, or you've got Dapper Dan, who did some collaborations with Gucci after Gucci was accused of ripping off some of his designs um, whatever <laughs> the ironic yeah but also like black women are often overlooked in the fashion world as well and we've given huge contributions so i think cfda putting two african-american female judges on their panel is a great step in the right it direction is. yeah um there's still a lot of work to do definitely for sure as always but i think it's a huge win for the community and for fashion in general because you got pair of two fresh eyeballs that come from a background and have an experience that those other people on the panels can't ever offer just because of who they are right absolutely it also occurred to me that we actually didn't name these people by name (laughs) okay so so these uh these two new judges are model paloma elsner and vogue.com fashion news director kiyoma nandi Mm -hmm. i'm going to assume that's how you pronounce that Mm -hmm, last mm -hmm, name mm -hmm. um And as per The Glow Up, which is an offshoot of The Root, which is my, like, black news network. It's where I get all my my African-American tea. Um, They say the new appointments came in response to significant criticism for the lack of full diversity on previous judging panels, which came to a head in 2018. While the CFDA Vogue Fashion Fund's most recent two winners have been black designers, Telfar Global in 2017, followed by... Pyre Moss in 2018, there were no black judges present on panels, compounding an already broadly discussed issue of marginalization and lack of representation within the industry. Yes. Yeah. So the model is, uh, she's essentially known as a body positive activist. Yep. And Nandi was London born. She's known within the industry as an advocate for inclusivity. And she joins heavy hitters and obvious names like Anna Wintour, Diane von Furstenberg, Joseph Altazara, Ava Chen, Mark Holgate, Jeffrey Kalinsky, Stephen Kolb, and RuPaul Patel. So I'm excited to see the finalists for 2019 CFDA Vogue Fashion Awards. And you can catch the live streamed show in November, but I'm sure that they will be announcing their finalists way ahead of that. So Mm, I see. I'm excited to see who takes it this year. Yeah, me too. This is awesome. I think it's great. I think it's just a reflection of really being completely inclusive. But I also think it's indicative of the fact that the fashion world is now having no choice but to listen to what not just the fashion world has to say about inclusivity and inclusion, but the world writ large. Mm-hmm, mm-hmm. I think with social media, with social media, there's the consumer has so much power yeah. that we've never had before. We have a lot of right. say on how we spend our money, where we want our money to go, and what For we're sure. willing to support and not support. Mm-hmm. That. I hope it only gets more diverse and more inclusive and more um, customer-empowered sooner. Mm-hmm, mm-hmm. I completely agree. And I think the more people voice their opinions and 
what they truly want consistently, mm-hmm. uh, it, it, it'll only get better. Because the more you voice it, at some point, people are going to have to listen. <laughs> yeah. So. For sure. Absolutely. Yeah. I mean, I feel the same way about, like, you know, Asians expressing their whitewashing of in Hollywood. And yes. Just, you know, actors talking about the stuff where before... Asian actors never really did mm-hmm. on a platform where it was so accessible to the public. Right. Why so, do you think that is? Just out of curiosity. I think there's some sort of also fear that comes behind with possibly speaking out. Like fear you know? of loss of maybe jobs or yeah. opportunities or prospects. Okay. Yeah. That makes sense. And yeah. I, and I think just recently because so many people are demanding as far as actors but also it's only because like you said there are consumers who are asking mm-hmm. and so it's backed by uh support and actual you know you can it's tangible right whereas before i don't know how much of that really existed growing up you know i don't know not a lot not a lot not yeah. a lot yeah i think so. in our coming of age episode we definitely like yeah. hit upon that. So I, yeah. I see what you're saying. It's also, too, I think heads and CEOs and who people who are in power recognizing that they need to do it. For sure. You know, or like the fall of Harvey Weinstein mm-hmm. and Amazon and Netflix and Hulu being much more open to diverse shows, which nice. do you think is good yeah. for us. Let's break through that bamboo and that glass ceiling, for shall For reals, we? though. <laughs> So shall we move on to today's show topic? Yes. Which is unfortunately not as glam and nope. not as uplifting and not as positive. Or diverse. <laughs> or diverse. Well. Well, eh. it's just, it is what it is. Yeah. And we, you introduced it because you actually read this article before I did. Sure. Absolutely. So, which I'm sure a lot of people did too. Yeah. So um, Anne Helen Peterson came out with an article called How Millennials Became the Burnout Generation. It actually came out around like mid-January. And I remember reading it. It is a monster of an Doozy. article. It has 16,000 words. It never ends. You're burnt out by the end of it. Yes. You definitely <laughs> feel a sense of burnout. So All through. I mean, obviously, Anne Helen Peterson was was writing this article from a place of burnout. The burnout was definitely speaking. It you had a mind you of could its own. feel it. Absolutely. But I remember reading it and immediately sending it to Jackie and saying, Jackie, oh, my God, you have to read this article and we have to talk about it on the show for two reasons. A, because we are both millennials. Burnout is a thing that our generation is a, a an ailment of our generation, quote unquote. Yeah. But if you're a minority, burnout ain't nothing new. It shouldn't be. It shouldn't be. Like, I think that black people and Asian people were born tired. <laughs> and But no, seriously. You think <laughs> like, so? I, I actually do. I think we were born tired and overworked I, and burned out in a plethora of different ways. Yeah, I don't think it's necessarily like, you could, however you want to say it, if it's tired or burnt out. But I think I'm not talking physical fatigue. Emotional, yeah, yeah like physical, all the shit. like psychological, exactly, whatever. Yeah, yeah, we're just, but I don't see. I don't even think it's like you don't know what you don't know, right? Okay, like fair. I didn't, I didn't even know. Like we don't know how much we have to deal with on a day to day basis, whether it is maybe my immigrant mom, or uh, feeling very white and then not Asian enough, and all this stuff that we covered in our Asian identity episode, uh, Asian identity crisis episode, uh, that. That just becomes normal for us. Yeah, right? it does become like a sort of white noise. Which I think then, in retrospect, actually becomes a really great strength mm-hmm. to handle everything that's changing and happening now. Totally. I hear what you're saying. So, before we go on, yes. I will link to the article in the show notes for people that haven't read it. But in right. a nutshell... It's BuzzFeed News. Yes. But in a nutshell, she talks about... And Helen Peterson goes into the various reasons why our generation, the millennial generation, is anxiety-ridden, burned out, tired, kind of... The work over- never stops. Why we fail at adulting. Right. Adulting that, that is not a verb. <laughs> that there is it's no... It's that catch-all phrase for, right. like, living right. real life. It's, it's pretty says. much like just the work never stops, even though you are off of work or... Which I think... I mean, she says it's like the millennial 
condition and i like a couple of the words you said um errand paralysis mm-hmm. um that yeah. was really cool Let's I, talk I, about that. I that really resonates with me okay one of the things that really resonated with me was this idea of we just keep piling on that list mm-hmm. and then that list carries over for months and months and months and it like it never ends because you cross something off and then you add three more things right right and then right. so you're always in this form of and it's not even like really important things right, right? they're menial tasks yes so essentially she defines Aaron paralysis as uh, millennials having a hard time doing menial tasks or tasks that are high effort, low uh, enthusiasm. Yeah, do the laundry. Yeah, this low on. benefit. Yeah. so to speak. Uh, and she calls she calls it Aaron paralysis because. These are not necessarily the things that we as millennials have been told. These are the exciting things that you have to do and you'll see a great payoff from them. These are just kind of the life things that have to get done to keep life going. Right, 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 right. Such as going to the grocery store or mailing something at the post office or making a return at a clothing store. Things like that. Yeah. Sorry, I cut you off. No, keep going. you're totally fine. Uh, it, it just, it was a lot of words. <laughs> Which is hilarious. I was like burnt out after that. Um, But this whole new shift in this generation, like I like how she talks about that, you know, our parents didn't have to deal with this kind of things, like the social media aspect of it. Um, Like, right, the baby boomers. Yeah, that generation. Young Gen Xers, I believe, are our parents. And I think with that, we have a lot more opportunities Mm -hmm. that they didn't have and they won't have because of technology. Um, You know, we've been able to do things faster, quicker. Right. Through whether it's purchasing groceries or on Amazon, having groceries delivered. Yeah, we live in an on-demand society for sure. Yeah. Um, my, My whole thing, which is funny because so I think my brother was telling me this story about how a millet, like a a woman came up to him, this a, a white girl, mm-hmm. and she <laughs> said she was expressing to him, and she said, "Oh, you know, us millennials are just so burnt out." And this is ironic. This is right before we had this episode. We recorded. Oh. We thought about doing this episode, and my brother started laughing, and he was like, "What are you talking about?" And she was like, "Yeah, we're so burnt out. We have so much work to do. We're always doing a lot of work." And my brother was like. Well, I'm a millennial, <laughs> and I don't know what she said, but what it really feels like to me is that it seems like, which I'm in it, we're in it, we're millennials, mm-hmm. it's this idea that we maybe possibly don't know how to turn it off. Like, we turn don't off the, the work, everything. Work, work mentality? Yeah, we don't know how to just stop looking at our phones. We don't know how to just say, work is done, I'm going to go play. Uh, well, we weren't really brought up that way. Yeah, I guess so. I guess my thing with this article when I first read it was, it, A, it lacks a ton of nuance. It's very clear that this article is written from a... Strong point of view. A strong, upper-class, white female point of view. Yeah. It was written with without any sort of nuance about what it's like to be a minority millennial mm-hmm. in this day, in this day and age and what that means because okay look but coming- is she is she trying to encompass it all i mean it's coming from a privileged woman's point of view white woman right but the problem is that you're you're assigning that privileged white woman point of view to, to an entire generation mm. of millennials, a lot of whom don't share that same socioeconomic background or status. Yeah. Because as a millennial, like through and through, the 2008 financial crash, which is when a lot of us were either coming out of college, uh, going into the workforce, coming out of college, or just before that had come yeah. out of college. Yeah, yeah, yeah. That set the foundation for what the work landscape in America looks like to us. Yeah. And everything was shit. So basically the financial collapse of 2008 was foundational to us because it let us, it kind of sets us up for a, a life of thinking that financial success or financial independence is a lot harder than generations before. Mm. This is a gross overstatement, but like the baby boomer generation had it a lot easier than us in terms of employment, in terms of much simpler. 
Yeah, I mean, that's a gross no overstatement. <laughs> it was one of those things where it's like that generation came out of high school, had high school degrees, got factory jobs, worked for 30 years, and then retired. Yeah. It's not like that anymore. Not at all. Precarious work is on the rise for our generation. The yeah. gig economy is very much alive and real. Freelancers. And, yeah. And, There's no 401k, no pensions. Right, exactly. This whole idea that you work a factory job for 30, 40 years, and then you retire, that model, That's that gone. equation doesn't work for us. That's and it's totally gone. gone. Social Security, no one's thinking about that. Right. We're staring down the barrel of a bleak financial future. A lot of us have student debt. Yeah. Because we were bought and sold on this idea that if you... Go to if school. You go to school, get a good degree, you'll and then you continue to go to school, grad school, or, or yeah. any sort of other... And you'll have a secure job. Yeah. Which is not true. Out, not true at all. I know so many people who, right after college and graduating, just didn't get a job in what they studied. Right. Yeah, exactly. Which is the whole point to get a job and what you studied is to graduate and then go into that. And most people, A, couldn't. Right. B, found out that that wasn't even what they really wanted to do. Right. Or C, just was, did did it because their parents said to do it or right. because society said that that was the right thing or didn't even really have a strong idea of what they wanted to do. Right. But now we're still screwed and saddled with all of this debt and our wages are not getting higher. No. They are steadily declining. Jobs with full benefits are becoming scarce and scarce. Very, very, very scarce. Yeah, absolutely. Um, and a lot of people have to work multiple jobs, mm-hmm. like just to keep their head above water. Every, a lot of us have a debt burden. The amount of taxes we'll pay in the future doesn't compare to generations before us. We're underslept, underpaid, have no work-life balance. Yeah. that And that's just all millennials. Yeah. That's not minority millennials yeah. whatsoever. That is all millennials across the board. Mm-hmm. Before I move on to to, to minority oh millennials, I'm going to like stick on because I really want to set up this duality of like, yes, all millennials are going through this set of circumstances. But it's then, a given. Yeah. But then tack on the added burden of being a minority. Right. So Anne Helen Peterson also talks about how our generation, the generation of millennials are a lot of us are products of helicopter parents, parents that optimized our after school activities, parents that really watched and monitored what we did and everything had to lead to a greater good, if that makes any sense. More or less. More yeah. or less. And I, I actually don't disagree with Anne Helen Peterson at all. Yeah. Um, I'm an only child. I was in a ton of activities growing up and there was an unsaid rule of like whatever I did had to it had to be fostered into something greater. So enjoying acting wasn't enough. I then had to parlay it into a passion that I then wanted to turn into a career, which granted I enjoy acting. So that was no problem for me, but that sort of really focused hyper awareness towards building out our kids to be lean, mean worker machines, I think is a flaw of a lot of millennial parents because you're right. We don't know how to turn it off because there was really no off to begin with. No, like yeah. at all. I mean, yes, not no. Yeah, and yes. I mean, and I think that that's what Anne Helen Peterson is talking about, where the Gen X generation could just sort of come out of college and lackadaisically look for the job that will turn into the career that will turn into a steady paycheck. But our generation doesn't have that anymore. Mm-hmm, mm-hmm, mm-hmm. Our generation's often accused of being cuddled and snowflakes and and whiners and complainers and it's not for no reason we have a lot of these things working against us that our parents generation really never had to deal with our generations buying houses less and less yeah or later and later we're quote-unquote ruining the diamond industry or the antique furniture industry (laughs) when she said that i was like but she's right because we're not getting married we're not but we're also not spending money like that no she's right about that she's totally right we're getting married less and less if at all and if we are are we buying extravagant fancy diamond rings not a lot of us Right, but then it's this whole idea of like this whole, the the constitution of marriage in itself is changing. People don't have to get married anymore, or need to have kids, or need to have kids to get married. That was also a thing of our parents' generation. But that that's people thing of our, go needed to get married in order to have a child because that was the right thing to do. Right, which now we're realizing isn't possibly or maybe the right thing to do or even that we want to do it. But that doesn't stop our parents' generation from putting that pressure on us, which is an added layer of our burnout. Yes. You see what I'm saying? So, I don't know. It's not that I don't know, but it's it's this feeling of, like, we're really trying to figure out who we are authentically. Right. 
and using our voices right. and the power of technology to find that. But I think that takes time and it's it's going to be messy before it becomes very clear, you know. I think I understand what you're saying. Because the general feeling is that a lot of millennials either don't know what they want. Oh, okay. I sure, you know what I mean? Mm-hmm. We're, we're like you were raised a certain way to do a certain thing, but then hit a, at a certain age in their mid-20s, late 20s, mm-hmm. realize, well, I really don't want to do this. Yeah. I really just want to give everything up and go travel the world, which That's a lot true. of people have done, mm-hmm. you know? Mm-hmm. And then that whole social media has changed it completely. I mean, yeah. Social media has definitely changed the landscape even though we know that not everything on social media is real and that people have very curated lives on social media that doesn't stop us from looking at whatever influencer friend, former colleague's life. But I think enough of that constant either distraction or jealousy or the idea it's that perfect life between travel. She says it really well. Yeah, yeah, yeah. Right? The the perfect work-life balance. Yeah. Yeah, that personified. Absolutely. everyone strives to achieve that and that now social media has become a way of maintaining a job Mm -hmm. slash has opened up a whole new category of jobs for companies yeah they hire people just to handle social media right. that wasn't a that wasn't a job that you had to do five or six maybe ten years ago true you know yeah so but I think the scary thing about that is that now a lot of people are going for careers in social media yeah. which is fine until until and or if social media stops being a thing or you just get replaced by AI. AI can compute everything and set algorithms and but, just post and like and unlike. But AI can't artistic, artistic direct or... No. So I think you know what I it's mean? the positions that, like, robots can't fill. But also, you know, like you said, when social media does not... When it falls or just isn't as important or something else happens, something mm-hmm. new gets invented and just... It's, it just feels like it's so messy. But then, I don't know, I read it and I'm like, yeah, this is this is part of it all. <laughs> yeah, I mean, I guess I had a lot of those moments through reading this episode well. of like, yeah, and I, I know. know. Like, it's hard out there. You want to know something? It ain't no easier to be a black woman. Yeah. We're like, yes, that list of problems that right. I just read off, that's applicable to all and millennials. But if we add a little bit of nuance and talk on what it's like to be, oh, I don't know, a black millennial and having inherited inherited trauma that from the onset already makes us tired and burned out. Totally. Whether it's like the inherited trauma that is associated with slavery or our owners or a sharecropper treatment of us or the school to prison pipeline or police brutality or inherited poverty or constant defending against racism in the world. That w- that could stop you or inhibit you from possibly getting the job that you actually want. Right. That you went to school for. Right. That you've accumulated debt for. Right. That's what it's like to be yeah. a millennial minority yeah. and have burnout. I mean, that's me. I went to school for acting. Hollywood doesn't represent any nope. Asians. How the heck am I going to get a job if they're not hiring Asian actors. Yeah. But it's, I know it's what I want to do. I know it's what makes me happy. I know that's the right path for me. Right. But then there's this huge disconnect between what I want to be and do and become when it's not being represented. Right. And I mean, I'm in a similar boat because I have a drama degree. I don't think I've ever had to flash or use that drama degree in my adult life. Yeah. It's not like we're going into a profession that you have to have four-year training for. Right. You know what I mean? So then you do end up having multiple jobs right. to pay the bills. Right. And as an Asian American, I have immigrant parents. I was going to say immigrant guilt. Do you have yeah. immigrant Yeah, exactly. Which the, is like its own form of burnout. Right. And a, a kind of mentality that I have to fight or that I have to embrace mm-hmm. and that I see it in my mother, you right. know, and that I it, it's a, a whole other added layer to things that 
that are normal for me. For sure. Yeah. Or let's talk about maybe the added stress that Asian American millennials have of having to uh, be the carrier of hopes and dreams for their immigrant parents mm-hmm. that came here, mm-hmm. aspiring for a better life for their kids, mm-hmm. or mm-hmm. maybe having to be language liaisons yep. between their immigrant parents Constantly and the world writ large. I mean, people don't really notice this, but a lot of immigrant ch- parents, like, I have had to do so much documentation. Yeah. I've had to do so much translation. Things that are simple things that maybe white parents can do for their like kids. I've had to read and translate and write things mm-hmm. that take a lot of time and energy, and that never ends. Yeah, you're forced to take responsibility for your family in a way that can sometimes skew, and this isn't just to your particular situation, but it, I feel like it's to a lot of Asians writ large. It kind of skews... Uh, family dynamics. Yeah. Who's responsible for who? Who's responsible for knowing who understands what? I mean, those lines get blurred from time to time. And it's not because you want it to happen like that. You guys want to be kids too, but you're forced to grow up faster, which leads to burnout. Yes. I feel like I've grown up super fast. Uh, Probably as soon as like in high school, just having to take over and do certain things that my mom had to do but right. she either because she was a single mom and because I knew that I could do it faster and better mm-hmm. and didn't want to see my mom be put through that stress unnecessarily you right know? definitely so I think as an African-American woman when reading through Anne Helen Peterson's article um something that jumped out at me because I live in the world as a black woman or Burnout and anxiety presents itself in different ways to African-Americans, and it seems like it does to white people. White people don't have to worry about uh, being being lost in a predominantly white neighborhood and looking like you don't belong. (laughs) And having the fear that some white racist person might call the cops on you, and you might be the next Trayvon Martin, or you might be the next, like, victim of police brutality. Yeah. Or shopping while black, when you have to defend your humanity of where you shop if you're in a more expensive store. I mean, let's not forget Oprah shopping overseas in Europe a couple years ago, and she's fucking Oprah. I know. And the store, one of the store's associates wouldn't show her a bag that costed $34,000 because she thought it was outside of Oprah's price range. That is Oprah fucking Winfrey. She can afford the world. But again, shopping while black is real. And it is a total stressor and a total anxiety source. And it all feeds into burnout. Or what about like boundary setting in the workplace while black? Mm -hmm. And having to navigate maybe the fear that you come across as a diva if you are setting a a boundary line. Yeah, you're too loud. Yeah. You know. Having to navigate around the stereotypes, which is just as true for Asian Americans as it is for black Americans. Totally. Yeah. I mean, a lot of it is for us, it's, you know, uh, they won't listen to us because we're too quiet Mm -hmm. and that we don't make noise. Right. And then if we do, are we then have to worry about how we're going to be seen in that way yeah because, wow usually you don't speak up and then all of a sudden you're speaking up like, right that's weird absolutely you know yeah i hate when people say be your authentic self be your true self because i think that is some white person bullshit i mean don't get me wrong i think if you can arrive at that point healthily mm-hmm. it's great right but you also have to understand that your body and your consciousness and your ego will not allow you to be authentic in those times where it feels like it's afraid and might get attacked. Yeah, well, it's hard to be yourself when you are constantly having to manage the impression that other people have of you. Yeah, then but that see, means that you're in thing, your though, head. You shouldn't even have to manage it. Why am I going to manage someone else's way of how they're going to react to how I'm going to be because of the way I look like? I'm talking about managing what this, the impression that this person gets of you and your competency and your humanity. Yeah, but you like we shouldn't have to do that. Yeah, but if if I'm in a workplace setting and I need the casting director to know that I can portray this black girl that could code switch between white and black flawlessly, I have to mine that I have to manage that impression that that casting director is getting of me or else I don't get the job. Right. That's what I'm talking about. And that's just 
bullshit. <laughs> well, right, but it's it's the reality of the world that we live in, it, especially as actors. Yeah. You I, know what I mean? Like, I understand that it's bullshit, which is also why I say it's some white person shit, because, like, white people are allowed to be white in public. We're not necessarily allowed to be super black in public without having a certain repercussion thrown our way. You're not able to be super Asian in public without people looking funny or thinking you guys are constant foreigners or being perceived in a different way and then thus yeah. being treated in a different way. Totally. Like that's the point that I'm trying to make and that yeah. all feeds into burnout and a, a certain type of burnout that Anne Helen Peterson would not be familiar with because no. she doesn't walk around this world as a minority. No, a lot of her, a lot of her writings at certain times to me felt really victimized, and it was sometimes very like, "Hello, white fragility, is yeah, that you?" Yeah, it just sort of like poor me. This is what's happening because of what's happening in society. But you know, we talked about how she didn't even really end it on a note of empowering or it's like, yeah. great, now that you know you're burnt out, no matter how much money you have in your bank account, no matter what kind of job you have and how many degrees you have, this burnt out thing is is, you know, universal as of right now. Right. Uh, what can you do about it? And I just, it really bummed me out that she was kind of like, I'm going to tell you how I feel. That's it. Well, yeah, because the entire point of the article is Anne Helen Peterson making the argument that burnout is a condition of our generation. Yeah, and then it's it, it, it's that whole thing of like everything has to be conditioned. Everything has to be labeled. Everything right. has to have an ism right. and an opia and a this. And it's like, if you just take a moment to embrace it, and not want to try to categorize everything and just mm -hmm. live it like we have. Right. Yeah. Then maybe your life can start changing. Yeah, exactly. I mean, she definitely does end this this article on a, a note of hopelessness. Yes. There's no way of fixing it. This is just our condition. And I I don't think that's I don't think that's an, a healthy conclusion to peddle. Right, but it's also not true. If you're right. Unless you believe it's true. This is very correct. True. Absolutely. Right. It, it right. just sort of felt like she was going to dump whatever she wanted to dump on the internet and then not even really provide any, you know, truth or wisdom behind that. And, I, and that's kind of what bothered me in the end because you sit and you get burnt out throughout that entire article and the payoff is to think maybe, okay, what's on the other side? You know? Oh, that's an interesting point that you just drew. And I didn't think about that. Like, answering the question of, like, who's allowed to take a break and be burned out? Yeah. Because you're right. Like, in reading this article, which is, again, 16,000 words, <laughs> it's a monster. The, the luxury to sit down and read an article about burnout, like, is a luxury. It is. That means that the luxury of her sitting down and writing an article about burnout is a luxury in and of itself. Yeah. So who's allowed to really be burned out? Right. Yeah, like who's allowed to take well, a break? Okay, that's fine. You're going to get burnt out no matter what. But who's allowed to just... who's Okay, I'm going to just put it into basic, very, a very basic phrase. Who's allowed to bitch about being burnt out when you have had the luxury to go to college, to be as self-expressed as possible in society without feeling a certain way because of what you look like, mm. without having certain conditions, certain certain moments of, you know, not being accepted. Like, mm. it's just, there's so many luxuries already that, that fall onto her or through this article mm -hmm. that I was just, I just felt very like, okay, well, you're not giving back. Yeah, I see, <laughs> no, I see what you're saying. You Definitely. Know? Because like white female burnout looks very different than like millennial minority burnout. Yes. Because it seems like you've got like job stress, financial stresses, work, work, work mentality, the constant need to then continually prove your humanity and like right to take up space. Yeah. That's something that minorities have to deal with. Having to justify your non-traditional lifestyle that's something that it seems like minorities and white people have to deal with mm -hmm, mm -hmm. but in the grand scheme of the world at large 
white privilege and white fragility is still often centered over the problems of minorities. Oh, yes. So it would seem like white people are allowed to be burned out and to take a break. Right. They can bitch about it. Where there is no break allowed for people of color. I hear what you're saying. I get that. I get that. But maybe for an Asian person, it's like, well, yeah, you know, you do have immigrant parents. You know that's what you have to do. Right. You know, you know you you know you have to take care of your parents. Damn. You know, like, like white people don't take care of their parents, Ooh. but I do. That is a sense of burnout <laughs> that I have just like hearing you say it. I get burnout. No, but seriously, because yeah. I don't take care of my parents. Right. I, I, I couldn't imagine what that's like. That is an American privilege. I don't privilege. have to do it. Yeah. That is an American privilege. Yeah. You're absolutely right. Yeah. Definitely. Yeah. And I, don't get me wrong. I'm sure if you are Asian and you don't want to take care of your parents, you don't take care of your parents. I'm sure you're going to have to deal with the guilt of that. But there's things that come with cultures, different cultures that are embedded that you just can't escape. Right. Dot period. Right. Yeah. Damn. Yes. So uh, to round this all out for you guys is what I can say because I have lived with a lot more of this burnt out maybe as just my normal life. I think that in the ways that I have really saved myself from feeling so burnt out, I think is, first of all, I think art is really a part of my life. Mm -hmm. And so it really fulfills me whether or not I'm being paid by it. Okay. You know, so I think my career path has somehow, despite the ups and downs, it has really actually saved me in a way mm-hmm. uh otherwise i would probably go and do and be the things that my society or my culture says i should and Got then it. you know then find myself fully burnt out and right. not knowing where to go for that so i mean i try every day to i wake up and meditate mm-hmm. and i also go to ballet every day and i think that on a chemical level, actually balances me out. Mm-hmm. I think really what Anne Helen is talking about, if you want to summarize her 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 sixteen thousand sixteen thousand words, yeah, Jeez. page article is just it's obvious, right? It's obvious that we don't have that balance. It's obvious that work will never stop. It's obvious that social media is always in our face. But I think. <laughs> We just have to be disciplined and committed enough to create that balance. Mm -hmm. And until we don't, we will always find ourselves being victimized or bitching about a situation that has happened to us, but it's actually co-created by us. Because whatever happened, we let that person contact us. We let the person do, you know, like we have to take responsibility. Right. I think a lot of it is taking responsibility for the life that you want to live and then creating actively creating that balance that you know you need and that is way easier said than done but i think having a conscious approach to that mm-hmm. doing little things that are going to fulfill your way you know make a big difference for sure i am i agree with you and i will second you on living a creative lifestyle i think when you live a creative lifestyle you automatically have agency over your life in a way that if I worked or if we worked a normal nine to five or had a a normal career path or trajectory, we probably wouldn't, excuse me, have as much agency over. Yeah. I mean, look at us like right now recording this podcast. This is agency of our own life and building a business in the process. Sure. Um, I think though on a practical level, when I was reading this article, anyone that knows me knows I love a to-do list. So when she was talking about Aaron paralysis, I was like, Anne Helen, you you cannot say that our to-do lists never end. You just have to make them properly. Yes. You have to prioritize your to-do lists into things that you can believably achieve in a day, a week, and a month. Right. You're really good about that. Yeah. Like, don't put... Um, book a commercial on the same to-do list that you would put go to the post office because commercials can take a week if not weeks to book yeah a post office trip takes five minutes yeah do you know what i mean yeah so when you compile it all into one giant thing right like that's stupid don't put publish a book on the same list that you would put go to the grocery store (laughs) that doesn't make any fucking sense (laughs) so i mean if you want some practical advice here's my practical call to, to action when it comes to things that you have to accomplish, prioritize your energy. Yeah, that's there's, a big one. 
huge. I think prioritizing our energy is the thing that she doesn't talk about at all in this article at yep. all. Mm-hmm. She sort of makes it seem like all of our energy, we have no choice over how we spend it, and our it, energy yeah. is just at the will and mercy yeah. of, 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 of our, our cell phones. Right, and our bosses, <laughs> yeah. and, and, and yeah. work culture at large. Yeah. No, it doesn't have to be. Yeah. Absolutely. It totally doesn't. Right. And when I think you prioritize your energy as a result, you prioritize your time. Absolutely. And your, your health. Your happiness. Your happiness. All Absolutely. Of that. Mm-hmm. Definitely. Mm-hmm. So that's my practical I love that. advice for you. And I think a little more abstract. Um, and, and again, what she doesn't talk about is really maintaining a sense of agency over one's life. And I think that because we are minorities... Maybe that's a little bit easier for us because there's that American life that we live, but then there's also that minority identity that we're struggling to also like marry the two. And Mm. so there is a sense of agency over what I will choose to dance around in my American life because I want to serve my African-American identity and ideals. Does Mm. that make sense? Yes, 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 it does. Like my choice to... Uh, if I'm going to go shopping for new clothes, my choice to shop black or to shop female or to shop Muslim or to shop Asian, yeah. that sense of identity or that sense of agency or where and who I choose to spend my time around mm-hmm. is also a, a sense one. of agency. Totally. What I choose to do in my free time. Completely. How I choose to give back to my community. I those agree. are all senses of who agency. Who you surround yourself with. Right. What you surround yourself with. Right. And I think that because we are minorities and we do bounce back and forth between a couple of different worlds we have a lot more choices and a lot more freedom in that respect Mm, i see what you mean so i would i'll close this out by saying for those of you listening that are burned out minority millennials or just burned out or just burned out but really this is like this is minority advice yeah uh don't forget to be grateful and have an attitude of gratitude (laughs) for the fact that we are able to tow the world between in two different that we're able to travel the world in two different be on a path of two different worlds right and we get to choose when we want to be more american and when we want to be more of a minority and i think that's a beautiful choice to have to make because white america cannot make that choice well they they'll never know what what it is to either i'm sure they they might have a desire right um but the simple truth is that they won't ever have to. True. Unless they really try to adopt a different culture, a different religion, so on and so forth. But, but I, I like having the option. I, I love agree. having well, the choice. I think in that sense, I'm, I am. I think being grateful, just like you said, with that changes the entire dynamic of it all. Yeah. And that it's not so much poor me. Look what, right? Look, you know, look what the world has become, and it's that it's their fault that mm-hmm. I'm burnt out. Right. You know, if you take responsibility, if you can manage your energy, prioritize your energy, what's important, what you want to commit to, and balance it all out with people you love and things you love, Mm -hmm. then you'll start to feel better. Yeah. Already. The minute you even just decide, like, I'm not going to put myself through this traffic. I'm going to... I don't know, wake up a little earlier, tell my boss I'm working from home today, whatever, like just little steps throughout the day make yeah. a huge difference. I'm going to start a gratitude journal. There you go. You know, I'm yeah. going to um, sit and enjoy this cup of tea in silence, mm-hmm. you know? I know whatever. for me, it's it's the conscious decision of not poor me, I'm burned out on the world, but more, fuck yeah, look what my ancestors did so that I could live this life. Yeah. And I'm going to build upon that and be the best possible version of myself. And that's the conscious decision that I make every day. Yeah. A lot of times for me, it's like, wow, I have a cell phone. (laughs) I have a a laptop in front of me. I get that. Yeah. I have a roof over my head. Yeah. Okay. What else is there that I should be complaining about? Right. I own a home. I drive my own car. Yeah. A lot of my ancestors didn't have those rights. Yeah. Absolutely. So anyways, with that being said, guys, I hope... You guys either go read it or don't go read it and that you can, well, if you really fully want to understand this article, maybe just read a little bit. Just watch how you'll probably be burnt out after you finish reading it. For sure. Disclaimer. (laughs) Uh, Other than that. Oh, yes. We want to close this with our black lace. Yeah. And Amazian segments. Yeah. So we figure at the end of every episode, we're going to just call out 
someone who's doing great things in the African-American community and in the Asian community. Yeah. I think we need to, to, to put our people on thrones and in the spotlight. And if you don't know who these people are, we're adding a person to your repertoire. Mm-hmm. I know you're super excited I about your amazing. Yes. So without further ado, who is it? It's Andrew Yang. Woo-hoo! He is a U.S. 2020 Democratic presidential candidate. What up? It's Asians really getting into awesome. politics. He is American. He is Taiwanese. Yes. He is most known for... Uh, being the CEO for Venture for America, which was a nonprofit fellowship program, and their mission was to create economic opportunity in America, in American cities, by mobilizing the next generation of entrepreneurs and equipping them with the skills and resources they need to create jobs. I love that. So essentially, he was in charge of a company to create more jobs. That's awesome. And he was successful, and then it got bought for millions. And in 2020, the Obama administration selected him as the champion of change. And then in 2015, the Obama administration selected him as president and ambassador for global entrepreneurship. Holy shit. So he is freaking amazing, super awesome. He is very well educated, has such a good message about universal income and why it would actually help. We're going to have a whole episode on him, but check him out. Joe Rogan, he was on Joe, shout out to podcasts. Um, He was on Joe Rogan for (laughs) almost two hours. Joe Rogan had him on and he talks about his entire view. Oh. Um, So check it out. A recent episode? Yeah, it just came out in February. Oh, okay. Which is actually two months ago. But but go listen to it when you just drive and whatever, you just keep it playing on the background. He has a lot of really good things to say and I think we all could take a page from his book. We could. Personally. That's about right. time we have an Asian president. God damn it. Or just more Asians in in politics. Politics. Yeah. I mean, don't get me wrong. I love me some Maisie Hirono. Yeah. But I don't think that she should be one of the few. I think that she needs more. For sure. Even though I love her so much. <laughs> she she yeah. really don't give a fuck. No. Does she, her and Auntie Maxine run neck and neck in terms of like <laughs> bad ass yeah. for me. Um, and yours is so we have talked about this little lady on the show but I want to just call her out so Missy Elliott is uh, going to become the first female rapper to receive ah, to receive honorary doctorate from Berkeley School of Music Wow! I know so the artist and producer will be awarded an honorary doctorate of music from the Berkeley School of Music at their commencement ceremony on May 11th she'll be the first female rapper in history to ever receive an honorary doctorate for the from the prestigious institution note it's an honorary doctorate when I was looking up um this news article, I found people who were like shading her, like, uh, how come she gets a, a doctorate? I don't get it. She didn't go to music school. And it's like, it's an honorary doctorate, y'all. Chill out. Miss Elliot is not gonna come and take y'all's jobs. Like, you know what I mean? Because that's exactly what she wants to do is Ex- take your job. Right, exactly. Because she wants to give up music and producing and all that stuff to take your job. Uh, to be a professor of music at Berkeley, of course. Um I wanted to just shout that out. I think that's amazing. I think that she's doing Good big, her. big, big things. We had a full episode on her, too. For, awesome. Right. Yeah. yeah. And See, she keeps we on were, keeping on. Yeah. Just saying. So congratulations hot, to Missy hot, Elliott. Hot. Uh, keep dropping <laughs> us those bangers. Yeah. I think that does it for our show. Yeah. Thanks for listening, guys. You can find us on iTunes and Spotify at Black and Yellow Podcast. We are produced by Zaitais, Christian at Zaitais. Mm-hmm. So you will see Zaitais pop up. That's just the channel we're on. Uh, we're also on the gram at Black and Yellow Podcast. I'm Jacqueline Chung Young. I'm again. I'm Alana Webster at Renegade of Fun on the gram. I think that no special announcements. I think we've wrapped it up. Stay yeah. tuned for next week's Thanks, episode. Guys. It should be spring next week. So Woo-hoo. happy early spring, I believe. I hope. Yeah. Happy <laughs> early spring, guys. In a, in a place where we don't have seasons. Very true. <laughs> <laughs> One love, stay woke. Bye, guys. Bye.